I give my pledge as an American to save and faithfully to defend from waste the natural resources of my country, its soil and minerals, its forests, waters, and wildlife. Hi, I'm Ben Marks, and this is GrottoPod. The words you just heard are the Outdoor Life Conservation Pledge, first published in the pages of Outdoor Life magazine in 1946. The pledge has been famously taken by everyone from Harry Truman to Al Gore. Another person who's taken the pledge is Stuart Brand, who's probably best known as the editor of the Whole Earth Catalog, the co-founder of The Well, and the president of the Long Now Foundation, which, among other projects, is building a clock designed to run for 10,000 years. On February 5th, 2019, I spoke with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist John Markoff about Stuart Brand. Markoff, who spent 28 years at the New York Times and wrote one of my favorite books, What the Dormouse Said, is currently writing Brand's biography. Because Brand's papers are at Stanford University, Markov has been working out of an office at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, which is perched on a hill overlooking the campus. Today's episode of GrottoPod features a portion of my interview recorded there. Note, at several points early on, you'll hear us utter the word Caro. That would be Robert Caro, author of the epic Lyndon Johnson biographies. Before I spoke with Markov, I had just finished reading an article by Caro titled Turn Every Page, which was published in the January 28, 2019 issue of The New Yorker. I just assumed Markov had read the article too. He had. And even though Markov's challenge of sifting through a lifetime of Brand's papers is nothing compared to what Caro describes in his piece for The New Yorker, Markov could relate. So, um, John, thanks for speaking with me today. Um, t tell me, why Stuart Brand? Well, uh, I guess that's a long and a short uh, answer. Uh, I had written an earlier book called What the Dormouse Said about um, events around the Stanford campus between 1965 and 1975 uh, that led the personal, the computer, personal computer industry. And uh, I... I'm about 10 years younger than Stuart Brand, and Stuart, uh, well, I mean, he, he was at Stanford in the 50s, and then he came back to the Mid-Peninsula in, um, in 1967. And, you know, I sort of felt that in, in my career and the things that I wrote about, I was kind of following about a half a generation behind Stuart for a long time, and he was doing things that interested me. And... Uh, you know, I guess the sort of synopsis of, of my project is that Stuart's life is a set of, is the spine of a set of events that have led to what I think of as a Northern California sensibility. And I'm trying to capture that. And so there's a bit of uh, a sequel uh, aspect to this. I mean, it's, it's a biography, but I'm interested in Stuart because of the impact he had on the world. And, um, you know, he was instrumental in sort of drawing together a set of uh, forces in uh, Northern California in the 60s and 70s and 80s um, that had a big impact on the world. So a sensibility story, perhaps, with technology playing a role. Yeah, technology played a role. Um, 
but I, you know, technology in the sense of, I think the, the whole earth catalog um, was, um, you know, subtitled access to tools. And so technology very, very um, broadly, not technology in this narrow Silicon Valley sense of the word. You know, reading what the Dormouse said, I mean, um, he's a little bit of a zealot um, appearing, you know, with the Merry Pranksters, with Doug Engelbart, um, with the whole the whole Earth catalog. I mean, he, he's kind of everywhere, it seems. Well, you know, it's interesting you use the word zealot because I used that word too, and now I'm a little embarrassed that I did because I think um, <laughs> that one of the things that's implied in a zealot is that they... They shapeshift. Yeah. You know, they sort of, they're not constant. And Stuart, I think, has appeared everywhere. Um, and yet, he, they, you know, I, I think he's been pretty constant in his worldview. World and so um, I think of him more like um, a high IQ Forrest Gump uh, than a Zellig. Okay. Although I don't think either of them really capture the spirit. Right. And how, how do you think um, uh, Brand, the prankster, would feel about um, having his papers at the Center for Advanced Study in BS? <laughs> well, the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences. Ah, Behavioral <laughs> Sciences. Forgive me. You know, but I think um, one of the things that I stumbled upon, Stuart was at Stanford, um, beginning as a freshman in 1956 and graduating in 1960, and in 1960, um, he wanted to be a, a journalist, a reporter, a writer. Um, and uh, he stumbled across the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, and he actually wrote a magazine-length uh, piece about CASBIS, it's, that's the acronym, mm -hmm. uh, which was never published, even though he got some interest from the New York Times Sunday Magazine. Ultimately, they declined to publish his piece. And I discovered it when I went back into his papers, which are here at Stanford, and uh, we actually, I guess last year, we, we finally published his, his piece on the CASBIS website. How does a biography like this come about? I mean, you know, what are sort of the mechanics of yeah. all that? The story of this project is very simple. Um, Stewart had been thinking about writing an autobiography for a number of years. Uh, and at a certain point, he decided he just didn't have the energy for that kind of a project. Mm. Although I have to say, he just I just got an email from him saying that he's interested in working on a book right now. He just turned 80, so he's got plenty of energy. Uh, but he chose not to write an autobiography. And, you know, he's very close to uh, Kevin Kelly, who was, of course, an editor at Wired and worked for, who was a protege and now a close friend of, of Stewart's. And Kevin thought there should be a biography of Stewart. And he approached me because he knew I was, I was interested in, in this period. And I was thinking about, this is sort of middle of 2016, I was thinking about leaving the New York Times and sort of casting around for a project. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it seemed like uh, I had not written a biography, I've written a couple of, of books that would pass as histories. Uh, and it seemed like an interesting project to me. And so I, I raised my hand and said, I'll, I'll try this. Right. And um, did you have trepidation about doing a biography since, as you said, you hadn't done it formally before? I should have, <laughs> to your, uh, your Robert Caro uh, point. Um, I did not understand the scale of what I was getting into. I mean, Stewart's lived a, a very full life. Um, he uh, really kept uh, 
all of his journals, all of his correspondence, and there are an amazing number of things that he's been involved in. You know, he's he's, not, he's moved around and his interests have, have been varied. And so the challenge is capturing all of that. Right. And when you say his papers are here, um, uh, what, what are we talking about? We're, we're obviously not talking about what Caro faces with the Lyndon Johnson archives, but can you give me yeah, a sense of the scale? Yeah, it's very precise. It's 54 linear feet is the collection. And uh, that, you know, when I was reading uh, Caro, and I think the number was 32 million documents, isn't that what the... Something like that. Yeah, so I know exactly the, the scale of Caro's project, and I there's no way a human being could look at all those papers, even right. though that was his mantra is, you know, turn every page. And that's what I've been trying to do with 54 linear feet, um, and it's it's been a real challenge. I've spent, with help, I spent a year in uh, in the Stanford uh, archive. I think there's something like 130 boxes. These are relatively small boxes, and there's mm -hmm. varied, varied things. And some there are journals, um, and some there's correspondence, and some there's you know miscellaneous documents, mm -hmm. and. Um, I have to say it's wonderful that Stuart um, was a pack rat. Um, for many years in Sausalito where he lives, he had a, um, a shipping container and he simply threw everything into it. He has never thrown anything out. And his journals going back uh, into the 50s when he was, I think he started, uh, his, he started his journals in high school. He was at Phillips Exeter mm -hmm. um, Academy and it's all there. And that's really quite um, yeah. wonderful from yeah. the point of view of a biographer. When you agreed, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there's a conversation with the publisher, and then there's also a conversation with the subject. And in terms of the subject, are there things that are off limits? I mean, do, do you like talk about ground rules, propriety? Do those conversations even happen? Stuart is a remarkably open, transparent person. So yes, we had that conversation, and the conversation was that there was nothing that was off limits. And it, there's a, a little bit of humor about the, the whole thing. I mean, <clears throat> you, you could possibly talk about the idea of too much information. <laughs> um, but uh, no, Stuart has been incredibly forthcoming. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've, read, I've read other biographers struggling with subjects who are alive, um, and... Um, who've had real battles over material. I've had none of that. Uh, the interesting sort of um, sort of uh, thing that I faced is I had actually looked at Stuart's papers for the first time in 2000 when I was working on what the Dormouse said. Stuart gave the papers to the library then, and Fred Turner, who was working on a book that would become from um, counterculture to cyberculture, and I was working on what the Dormouse said. We were both in there looking at, the, looking at his papers immediately, and, uh, uh, you know, I had a very narrow uh, interest at that point. I was, inter I was interested in, in, because Stuart had run, uh, had, had helped with uh, Doug Engelbart when he did this um, demonstration of his technology um, in, in, in 1968. I wanted to find out if Stuart had written about that, and he actually had not. So um, that, was, that was a disappointment. But the journals were there. And then so when I came back in 2017 to look again, I was stunned to discover that the journals weren't there. The library had gone through and painstakingly photocopied everything, and then some poor librarian had uh, had uh, redacted 
the names of, of, of many of Stuart's girlfriends over many years um, for what reason I was never able to completely figure out. So that was, information was gone. Uh, and uh, I told Stuart about this. The library had not told Stuart they'd done this. And he went, he was a friend, he is a friend of Mike Keller, the head librarian in Stanford. So he went to, to Mike and said, why did you do this? And Mike said, well, we were protecting you. And Stuart said, well, I'm 80 years old. Why are you protecting me? And so they immediately put the journals back. Ah. Uh, but the time period meant that I'm now forced to go back through a second time. Because ah. uh, I had gone through the redacted papers, now I'm going through the unredacted journals again. Where physically are all these papers? Well, I don't know where they are physically. Stanford has a, a warehouse where they keep the material for their special collection. Ah. And you go to this reading room uh, in the Green Library at Stanford, and you have to reserve a box two days ahead, and then it appears magically, and you're able mm -hmm. to work with it. You know. Um, when I was there, it's an interesting uh, comment on technology and how things have changed. Uh, when I was there in 2000, you had to come in with only a paper and pencil and mm. painstakingly copy whatever you wanted. Now they let you bring your iPhone in and you mm -hmm. can make a digital copy and, and there are programs, Adobe has a program that does OCR, um, uh, Evernote has an application called Scannable that does OCR. and so. You can move much faster than you could before, which is a blessing and a curse. Uh, because I was trying to move through this material as fast as I could, I was capturing stuff and then looking at it after the fact. And right. so that creates a, a, a workflow issue um, that, that's been challenging and I'm, I'm finding that I'll go back and I'll look at a collection a second time often. Mm -hmm. While I'm writing, I've begun writing now, and so it's uh, oftentimes you'll see things in a different way than you saw them the first time you looked at them. Sure, and in terms of humans, you know, human uh, resources, that must be the same thing. Where you speak with someone, you get more information, and then you realize you have to speak to them again because maybe you didn't ask the right questions, maybe the answers don't sound right based on what you've come up with. Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I have done some going back to people. I need to do more. Uh, I've, you know, I've done a tremendous number of interviews with Stuart. I've been speaking to him on a weekly basis for more than a year, year and a half, and I've transcribed that information. And I've probably done a hundred additional interviews, um, mostly just once with people. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. As I now am writing, and I'm. You know, I'm sort of. I was. I'm basically through his childhood at this point, and uh, I'm. In, I've gone through his college uh, period at Stanford, and I'm writing about um, time he spent in the military. Um, and so, what's hardest is, you know, at at a distance of sixty years, people's memories, by and large, are pretty vague. I've found some exceptions. I've found some people with really startlingly clear memories, but Stuart's memory for specifics and anecdotes, I'll show him stuff from his journals that he has no memory of. Hmm. And so it's really nice that the journals, journals are there because they're the contemporaneous account, and mm -hmm. I use that as ground truth. Have you thought of, you know, like bringing him back to SRI and the, the lab that he, you know, the, 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 the room that he worked in? So uh, there, you know, the other project that's going on right now is there's a group of young filmmakers who are working on a documentary about Stuart. Ah. And I've been cooperating with them. And so we have done that. Um, we've gone um, back to places where the whole Earth catalog was produced. We've gone to Xerox Park. We've gone to Stanford. 
to his old haunts in Sausalito, mm-hmm. um, which has been fun. And that does bubble stuff to the surface. It, it occurs to me that as a researcher, um, the, the writing piece of it being parallel, right? But as a researcher, there's this cache of physical material. But um, Stuart Brand has lived in this period of time when we went from physical to not physical. And so are, do you have access to, you know, I don't know, emails? I'm trying to imagine yeah, yeah. what it would uh, be, an old hard drive on an old computer. So it's, um, Stuart recently gave me 5.7 million email going back to 93. The problem is, and we're still, I'm working with Stanford. Um, I believe that, you know, this is um, uh, an archive that came out of Macintosh Mail and to our horror, of course, there was a file that was corrupted, and so the, the mail program broke on importing. So I'm still trying to sort of get my hands around 5 million email. Mm-hmm. Um, Stanford has tools that are designed to deal with those kinds of digital um, uh, you know, objects at, at this point. Um, but Stuart broke, I mean, in terms of the scale. They uh, had actually designed uh, this program called EPAD, which is a publicly available tool, for archives, mail archives up to a million messages. Mm. So 5.7 million messages has scaled beyond their capacity. So we're still figuring that out. Uh, and I have to go back and try to export that stuff again. Right. And you can't just take a chunk of it at a time? That's what we're going to try to do. That's what you're trying well, to do. Well, you can't. Um, yeah, there are probably various laborious ways to do this. And I'm still sort of... I haven't gotten my hands on the, 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 you know, the organized email yet. How long are you giving yourself or is your publisher giving you to, uh, uh, to, to be done? Yeah. So the original deadline was last fall. I, I think, you know, I think writers and book writers are notorious for missing book deadlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> I don't think there's any pressure here. The pressure I had put on myself initially is I was hoping to, to have the book arrive around the time that the guys who were doing the film um, arrived. That would be sort of very timely from a marketing point of view. They want to uh, produce their film and uh, introduce it in the in the beginning of uh, 2020, and there's no way I'm going to make that. So I've sort of, if they're on that, uh, you know, if they're on that schedule, I'm not going to arrive at the same time. And right. I'm not worried about it. But you could perhaps publish... Um, um something about Stuart Brand that could be published somewhere mm-hmm. as a That's nice know, idea. tie along. You know, there, there may be a chunk of it or a, 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 a year yeah. or a week. Yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. I mean, I've already, the, I, there were sort of, the things that appeared in the Journal of Alta California were, were things that I stumbled upon in the course of doing this project. And mm-hmm. so that's sort of already going on. Maybe I'll do more. When you're this in the weeds on a project like this, um, do you even find yourself thinking about the next thing, or is that an impossible thought? I do. Um, you know, I haven't gotten the New York Times completely out of my blood. Mm-hmm. Um, the Times has been very uh, kind to me, and the door's still open there to write for them. And you know, mm-hmm. I, I do the do that a little bit. I'm not what I'd call mid-career. <laughs> you know, maybe I am, but you know, I'm almost seventy, and so uh, you know. I, I've never actually had a sabbatical from from writing, so that that occurs to me too. It'd be fun to just go backpacking for a while. Ah, <laughs> and, I could do that <laughs> and, and not feel the need to capture anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
Boy, what a relief. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I used to do that before I, uh, in my 20s, I would spend my, when I was a starving freelancer, I would spend my summers in the mountains and then come back and start over again, mm. which was from a commercial point of view was a, a disaster uh, as a freelance writer. Uh, but from a lifestyle point of view, it was great. So maybe I could go back to something like that. But I actually spent a decade uh, working with a summer camp in Northern California called Unalay, which is a Palo Alto-based summer camp, mm -hmm. uh, backpacking camp. And I grew up going there as a kid, and then I was, I think I worked five or six years there as a, as a counselor. And, and where is the camp? In the Trinity Alps. Oh, okay. Uh, in Northern California, really yeah. sweet pocket mountain range. Yeah. Uh, I've spent a lot, of, a lot of summers there. You know, I'm a, a child of a Sierra clubber, so I spent a lot of time in Yosemite and the Sierras mm -hmm. when I was growing up. Yeah. So the Northern Calis California sensibility is, is really in your bones. Yeah, I mean, that, that, very much so. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've sort of followed Stewart's career. I mean, I first stumbled a Crossing when I was in college, and you know I was not here in the Bay Area in college, but I had grown up here, and I'd come home, and I uh, ran across the Whole Earth Truck Store. Uh, you know, I, I was very familiar with the catalog. Uh, I was never, uh, I never, you know, in a commune, but I was very familiar with the people who were in communes in that period. Uh, you know, I was a member of what was called the New Left, and. Um, and even going back farther, there have been some really funny things that have happened in doing the research. Uh, Stewart was in um, uh, it, at Stanford in 1960, and I was growing up in Palo Alto. I think I was, at that point, I might have been 1968. I was in junior high school. And uh, Charles de Gaulle came to Palo Alto to see the Stanford Industrial Park, and he was given a tour. And when he left town, um, he was driven in a motorcade with police escort in an open limo with his Charles de Gaulle hat on. And uh, they came down Waverly um, on their way to the airport. I don't know why they came down Waverly, but they did, driving through Palo Alto, I guess. And we all went down to the corner. And the kids across the street who were a little bit older, um, the Steinhardt family, uh, this is like now a block from where uh, Larry Page and Steve Jobs lived, and Larry Page lives. Uh, in Palo Alto, uh, one of the kids dressed up as Napoleon and lay down in the gutter. <laughs> and I have this very clear memory of Napoleon's motorcade flashing by. So I'm reading in Stewart's um, correspondence, and actually I think this was in his journal, and he was working on this it's a very early sort of um, studies of, of, of co-evolution ideas. Uh, he had a senior project involving the the interaction of two species of tarantula out on Jasper Ridge, which is behind campus. And he noted that while he was driving out to Jasper Ridge, he saw de Gaulle's motorcade going the other direction. Uh, <laughs> so there was this weird point of interaction. Right. <laughs> I was, um, well, he would have been 20 and I was probably 10. Is the book going to get into um, kind of his takes or observations on where we are right now in terms of how we interact socially and culturally with technology? Uh, I, I think so. I mean, you know, Stuart, it, over the last couple of decades, has focused on a couple of, you know, very big ideas that are in line with, you know, ideas he had when he was much younger. I mean, this is my point, that he's, he may have moved from 
project to project, but there have been a lot of constants in his life too. And you know, the opening uh, sentence of uh, the whole Earth catalog is, "We are as gods, and we might as well get good at it." And right now, you know, uh, I guess 20, 25 years ago, he started a project in San Francisco called uh, the, the Long Now uh, Foundation um, with a computer scientist who's named Danny Hillis, who had this idea that humanity really needed to engage in long-term thinking. And the idea was to build this clock that would be mechanical and would run for 10,000 years as an exercise in long-term thinking. Clock's almost finished. You know, they were lucky enough to get Jeff Bezos to subsidize it. And it's um, in Western Texas, and it's a remarkable, remarkable project. Uh, and uh, out of the Long Now Foundation, uh, Stuart and his wife, Ryan Phelan, started another project called Revive and Restore, which is focused on the idea of de-extinction. Uh, the, the notion, I mean, the popular notion is bringing back the woolly mammoth, but the, the deeper notion, and this is sort of what's... Um, an example of Stuart's continuity of thinking uh, is uh, building resilience into species that are under threat from climate climate change mm -hmm. using modern technologies like CRISPR and um, other gene editing techniques to make species that are in these very sort of endangered niches and ecosystems more survivable. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so, you know, rather than sort of, you know, he. He started the well in the 1980s, very early, you know, social media effort. Um, I think he has he has views on what's happened in social media, but that's really not what he's focusing on right now. The thing that's curious to me about the 10,000 year clock is, you know, that, um, you know, one wonders is if, if, if it'll ever run for 10,000 years at the rate we're going, and you you know you talk about getting species to adapt, but, you know, how do you get um, hundreds of millions of people to adapt to the fact that they're living at sea level? And, you know, I mean, how do you use CRISPR to solve those sorts of problems, right? Yeah, maybe insoluble. Stuart is an optimist, uh, and he is, um, you know, very consistently focused on the, um, the fact that we are tool using species were defined by the tools that we design and uh, I think he's optimistic about our ability as a species um, to, to solve some of these problems which you know many people aren't uh, Stuart has maintained I think actually his optimism has grown over the years and you know, that's a, a huge debate but I, I respect him for sort of sticking to his gun he's very proud of the fact that uh, he took something when he was seven, uh, a pledge um, from um, Outdoor Life magazine, the Conservation Pledge, and he can still recite that um, by heart. And I think that really defines him uh, as, a, you know, as a human and sort of what he's focused on throughout his life. Do you remember the conservation? <laughs> he does. I don't. Okay. But it's about protecting the wildlife and stuff I'll look like it that. Up. Yeah. I'll look you it up. You can find it on the web. Yeah. He I'm... can recite it from heart uh, at this point. I probably should memorize it. Okay. <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with writer John Markoff about his forthcoming biography on Stuart Brand. It was recorded on February 5th, 2019 at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Production help this week was provided by Susan Gerhardt, 
George Higgins, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingarner. I'm Ben Marks. Tune in next time for another episode of Grotto.